How do you think about someone allocating, you know, from what they know and diversifying that into something that they also don't really know or that's new to them like alternatives? I would actually argue that a lot of alternative investment strategies are easier to understand than public market. If you can really simplify a description or an explanation of what an alternative investment strategy is, I think it can make a lot of sense. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited investors build their legacy by growing their monthly passive income through private investments. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner. And today we have on the show, Brandon Fisher, also joining here from Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you. It's good to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. I'm, uh, I'm excited to continue our conversation. So, um, to, to set a little bit of context, I met uh, Brandon at uh, a local investor event a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were at the DLP Capitals. Um, they, they had like a a dinner uh, where everyone could come in. You you know, existing investors could come and can learn about uh, the the fund, and then they could you know bring some friends that might be interested in learning about it. Uh, and we we had this really fascinating conversation. Um, around his background and how he does, how, how he advises clients um, to invest in, in this space. So, to give some background on Brandon, he joined Simon Quick, a financial advisory firm, in 2019 and est- uh, established the firm's office here in Denver. Uh, he focuses primarily on business advisor for another Denver-based asset management firm. So he's he's been here for a while. And uh, among many accolades, uh, Brennan is a certified financial planner. He holds degrees from Colgate University, CU Boulder, and Dominican University of California. He is the president of the Rocky Mountain Estate Planning Council. He serves uh, on the finance committee uh, for the Ball Brothers Foundation, and and I mean a lot more. He he had a he had a ton of accolades to to share, and and ultimately why we have him here on the show today is because he advises people on how to invest a lot of money. And I thought, what a what a great person to have uh, and tell us how, how we, sh- we might be thinking about it. So uh, to kind of get us started, a um, couple of the things I want to cover in this episode include why do some passive investors work with uh, a financial advisor and others don't? Like when does it make sense to work with one, if ever, uh, and and really diving into how you advise clients and and the way you think about the world of investing. So, to set the stage here, how how large is Simon Quick? What does the firm specialize in, and and what problems do your clients have when they come to you? Sure. Uh, so Simon Quick is a twenty year old. RIA, meaning that we are uh, registered with the SEC, we're independent of any brokers or banks, and um, that model of wealth management uh, attempts to minimize the conflicts of interest or product bias that you might find in certain parts of the market. So we have about $6 billion in client assets that we manage. Our clients are nationwide. Uh, there are 80 employees at the firm, and uh, we're employee-owned. About 26 of us are owners, including me. 
And um, we're really aligned with our clients in terms of the strategies that we recommend because 14% of that asset base that I mentioned is employees and their families. So uh, we're eating our own cooking in a way that I know is important to you and to, to some of your listeners. So I think that that's uh, something I wanted to just say up front. No, I love that. Uh, and, and, you know, one thing that just kind of tipped me off at, at the beginning here is this idea of being independent from banks and how that influences what products you push. I would love to dive into that. Well, we don't push product. That's the point. Uh, people pay us for our advice. Uh, we don't have products and we try to be agnostic about what investment managers we allocate client capital to. Um, so the, the, the point is, um, we're, we're a fiduciary for our client and we have to put their interests first and make decisions that are in their best interests. Um, and as certified financial planners, that's what the, that's the standard that we're held to. So at what point is someone, what problem is someone trying to solve when they get introduced to you? Um, that's a good question. So, Typically, their financial situation has just gotten more complex. Uh, they might be an entrepreneur who's selling a business. They might be an executive who's got complicated uh, stock compensation and they need help sorting that through. Or they might be a part of a multi-generational family where there's a transfer of wealth happening from one generation to the next. And um, we take the uh, responsibility of managing that wealth off of the client's shoulders so that they have the freedom to uh, pursue what, what matters most to them. Um, so we're a trusted advisor providing holistic advice to people who have generational wealth. In other words, more money than they expect to spend during their lifetime. So how do you make money? Uh, we are paid um, a management fee that is based on the uh, the size of the client's account. So it's a, a fee schedule and uh, starts out as 1% on the first 10 million, goes down to 85 basis points on the next 15 and so forth. So it's a regressive schedule. And that is the uh, the only way we're paid. We're not paid by investment managers or broker dealers or anybody else. And why pursue that path uh, of I, I, actually, let me take a step back. Um, when you say uh, based on their account, so like you th they have a bank account with you and they transfer their money into it and then you redeploy it. Um, sort of. Uh, so since the Madoff scandal days, um, RIAs like us have been required to have a third party administrator, a custodian um, that manages that, that holds the assets uh, where we're advising. So uh, that might be Fidelity. It might be Schwab. It might be Pershing. Uh, we use all of those custodians. And I think it's important to understand that the client has direct access to that account. They can they can fire us and replace us with a different um, advisor anytime they want. Um, but they provide us with access to their custodial account to make trades with into certain investments and out of others. So um, 
there it's not a bank account per se it's an investment account and we advise on that got it so so i'm i'm just thinking about my portfolio i open up my fidelity i've got uh maybe my individual account and then i've got my roth ira account and then i you know there would be a separate account that's opened up in my fidelity and it's a custodial account that both you and i have access to and then that's where uh you're you're advising and, and maybe allocating capital. It could be a new account. You could also um, make us the manager on your RI, on your IRA or on a 401k or any other kind of account that you might already have with that custodian, so that we could also make trades for you there. Um, and that's what some of our clients do. They simply um, move the assets over so that they can be managed by us. Understood. Okay. So t- talk to me through, you got into this field of, of advising and, uh, you know, I sit here on a, a little bit in a different part of the industry where, you know, I, I'm more of a fund manager and I'm, I'm looking uh, for funds to partner with and, and we split, uh, our, our incentives are aligned around performance. Um, and you've chosen this career path of going down an advising route. Maybe help me understand, um, like why someone would choose maybe your path versus this fund manager path that I'm, uh, I'm going down. Sure. Um, so I think I'll back up a step and just explain what my previous career was, if that's okay. Cause it, yeah, it, it, it informed it. why I'm doing this now. Um, I was uh, a college administrator. I was running a development office for a small college on the East Coast. And in that role, um, I was a trusted advisor on the philanthropy side for high net worth families. And I enjoyed managing those relationships and um, helping them through important decisions that impacted the present and future of their family. So when I decided to um, make a career change into wealth management, that was one of the experiences that sort of um, informed the path that I took into this career. So what I do as an advisor is provide holistic advice to our clients. And that starts with financial planning. Um, The financial planning that we do actually uh, dictates the asset allocation and the portfolio of investments that follow that. So the first thing that happens is we, we create an investment policy statement for the client. And that's where we lay out what their return expectations are, their risk tolerance, their income needs, their liquidity needs, cash so all flow. All the boring stuff that are on the sheet of paper that someone sends you and you fill it out. And it's <laughs> yeah. like, what's your, yeah, where are you at? That stuff. Yeah, that stuff. And, um, you know, it, 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 it might be dry, but it's important to do because, um, you know, then your investing becomes more strategic. Right. It's not um, uh, you're, you're seeing the forest through the trees and it's our job to uh, stay at that high level. And any time a client is, is thinking about, oh, I, you know, I'd like to think about investing in real estate or I'd like to get more involved with uh, venture capital or whatever it might be. We have to sort of bring the conversation back and and remind ourselves what their financial goals are. 
You know, it's all driven by what their goals are. And um, if if the decision is aligned with those goals, then it's easy to do. Um, if it's not aligned with the goals, we have to understand why and maybe change the goal. Right. So that's kind of where we sit as the financial advisor. And it's not just investing. Of course, we want to make a lot of money for our clients, but we also want to save them a lot of money by uh, being efficient on the tax side and making uh, smart decisions about what entities to form um, with uh, their estate planner and so forth. So it's uh, it's both estate. Uh, it's it's financial planning and investment consulting. Okay, so 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 you've talked a little bit about you know your helping clients uh, go back to their uh, original investment goals. I've talked a lot about this uh, maybe in previous emails that people might have on my my subscriber list or or in previous podcasts. This idea of an investment thesis, and you know the way I've thought about my investment thesis is. You know, I've wanted to invest in cash flowing assets until I have enough to meet my, um, my personal expenses and then kind of dump the rest into, um, high risk, high, um, volatility, I guess, assets, um, but high reward. And so it's coming back to this investment thesis. And, and if I'm understanding you right, what you're basically doing is helping people craft that investment thesis and then basically help keep them disciplined to what they originally set out to do. Is that what I'm understanding? That is, that's all correct. But I would go further in saying that um, we have a very robust internal investment research capability. So there are six certified financial um, uh, analysts who have a lot of training and experience in analyzing investment opportunities who are looking at upwards of 600 different funds a year across asset classes and making, um, doing a lot of deep due diligence. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we have a platform of 70 different investment managers that we use to custom construct each client's investment portfolio. So, um, a lot of our clients either don't feel equipped to do that due diligence on their own and decide how to allocate their assets or uh, they don't have the time, right? They're, they might be busy people and, and prioritizing other things. So they have offloaded the responsibility of, um, you know, doing that research to us. And I think we all have blind spots or areas where we are less expert than others in terms of investing, right? So uh, some of our clients might be hedge fund managers who are really good in that asset class, and they can certainly invest their own capital there. But they might not know as much about investing in fixed income or investing in the public equity markets or that kind of thing. So, um, you know, clients come to us for all different reasons, but I think a lot of them are just either unwilling or unable to uh, have the kind of rigorous discipline that you have. Uh, you know, they, they, they just might not be interested in doing that. So there's, uh, I find that when it comes to investing, there is a large continuum of you know, there are investors who, you know, I think when you're a teenager or when you maybe have your first little bit of money when you're in your 20s, you 
invest in something because your friend says it looks good or it's going to go up, right? And and you do like really no due diligence. And then, you know, that can span all the way to, you know, you have an entire family office investment team. If you, you know, have huge, large sums of capital where they're doing this kind of due diligence, you know, kind of for you uh, or on behalf of the the family office. And then maybe like you sit somewhere in between that where someone can hire it's kind of like maybe like a fractional family officer advisor in that way and and I think you know when uh, I don't have a financial advisor you know and 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 one of the things that I'm asking myself and and I thought would be a good reason to to have you on the show is to talk through it, when does it makes sense to hire one. I mean, in my eyes, I am very much thinking about how do I become a better investor? How do I surround myself with other people who are doing due diligence on, on the same types of things that I'm looking into? I can, I can crowdsource, um, I can crowdsource, uh, why people like a fund and why people don't like a certain fund. And, and I can kind of gather all that and take all these differing opinions. And, and maybe you would say, I have the time and this is my career. And so it makes sense for me to do that. Um, but for people who don't have that time, maybe it makes sense to work with an advisor or like, you know, it's like, where, where does that transition happen or how should you be thinking about whether, you know, it, it, just to add one more point here, it's like, I've always had this notion that, um, I'm going to be a better steward of my capital, or at least I have a much higher incentive for allocating my capital properly. And so, you know, I've kind of like shied away from hiring a, a, a financial advisor, but maybe that's a limiting belief. Talk, talk me through that. Sure. No, I think, uh, you made an important point about the commodification of, um, uh, of wealth management. I think there are large parts of this profession that are being commoditized, uh, by technology, by so-called robo advisors. You know, it's, it's, it is possible for people to, um, to, to find good investment opportunities. Um, without paying much for that, because you know information's available to everyone um, and so forth. But I think um, you know you also mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago uh, the term family office, and that's the small niche market where where a firm like ours plays. So I don't think that that part of the wealth management spectrum. Um, can be commoditized or can be, um, replaced by, um, robo advisors. You know, what we're doing is very personalized to the client. It requires, uh, trust and it requires that we understand, um, all of the stakeholders in that client relationship really well. Um, and I think the, the, the folks that need to think about having, um, an advisor relationship like the one I'm talking about are the are the people that feel like they have more money than they will likely spend in their lifetime um, because the importance of having a team of advisors working on your behalf and typically 
a wealth management firm like ours is the quarterback on that team, but that team includes trust and estate attorneys, CPAs, life insurance brokers, and perhaps others who have um, the ability to sort of steer you in the right direction over the long term. Um, it's important to have a trusted team around you if you are um, uh, in that in that space and oftentimes really wealthy families like 500 million or more will create a single family office and they'll simply hire a staff internally to do those things for them. Um, but if you have between, let's say, 10 million in net worth and 500 million in net worth, you might consider a multifamily office firm like Simon Quick uh, to to help perform all of those things that we've discussed. Investment consulting, financial planning and family office services, which um, some portion of our of our clients ask for. Uh, that can mean anything from bill pay to property management to bookkeeping um, for our clients that have really complex asset holdings. So I'm hearing that, you know, working with a firm like yours is if you're in the 10 million and above group. I sit around the five, six million uh, in net worth area and and I've had to pull all of those resources together myself, right? Like I, I have uh, you know, I'm I'm not working with an office that provides all of those things. I've had to go out and do my due diligence and find an estate attorney and find a CPA and find a life insurance. You know, I've I've done everything you listed. I I have a different person for each one of those. So, does is that something that if you're below that threshold, that it's just you need to go out and find those people and you need to be educating yourself about or not necessarily. I think there are um there there are good advisors uh, for what we what we call the mass affluent um, sector and um, those firms, if they're good, uh, will do the same thing that I've done very intentionally over the last five years, which is to um, build a network of complementary advisors where I can refer clients if they need that. Right. So as we're getting to know a new client and we're reviewing their trusts, we're re reviewing their estate plan and their insurance program and things like that, we might find holes um, in their program. We might find places where we think they need to update their estate plan or that kind of thing. And if they don't already have a good advisor in that area, certainly we can suggest ones that we trust and we know will serve them well. Um, so. Um, I think it's good to have a team. Um, you mentioned that you've you've kind of tried to put together a team. I think that's exactly the right approach. And you want that team to sort of row in the same direction together, right? Um, so they, they should all be talking and working together on your behalf. So when it comes to the types of, of things that you're advising on, so, you know, you mentioned that you have like 77 different funds that, you know, you're analysts have gone through and they do 600 funds a year and, and they, they, they've dwindled them down to these that meet your criteria. Um, is that criteria that you can share that all of those funds kind of pass? I can, I, at a high level, I can do that. Um, I'm a client advisor, so I'm only peripherally involved in the research process. We have, like I said, an internal investment research team that does that. Um, but, um, the part, the due diligence process that they do, um, they're looking to understand the manager's track record 
they are looking to understand how experienced the management team is together. Like, have they demonstrated an ability to execute on their strategy uh, together? And we're looking to analyze all different kinds of risk, right? Whether that's key man risk on the executive team, whether it's, um, you know, other kinds of, of risk within the fund manager's organization, um, whether the strategy itself is at risk of being relevant or of being successful. Um, we're also looking to um, understand what other kinds of LPs they have in their fund, right? Are there other institutional investors like ours investing? Um, we certainly don't want to be the biggest investor in their fund. Um, we want to um, make sure that they have the right processes in place in terms of reporting and compliance. Um, we want to make sure that their systems are robust so that they're not going to be victims of fraud or cybersecurity um, intrusions. Um, so all of the things that you might expect, you know, just asking a lot of questions and coming to understand and trust that manager the same way we would um, if we were a, a client looking for a wealth manager like Simon Quick, right? Yeah. So. Uh, it sounds like the investment firm pretty much does all of the basic due diligence that you would expect uh, a, a standard LP investor to do. Like all the things that you mentioned are things that we as investors, when we're looking at these deals, should be doing if we're not working with a firm like yours. Right. So, for example, um, you know, I have a client who met a private equity fund manager, and this guy pitched him and. So the, the client came to me and he said, I have this investment opportunity. I think I'd like to do it. And I said, well, how many other private equity managers have you talked to? Like, how, you know, like, how do you know this is a good one or a bad one? And what kind of research have you done? What kind of context do you have? And he kind of got quiet, you know, and I think <laughs> that that's important. <laughs> like, I don't know that a typical person on the street always has the ability to access the information they need to make those smart decisions. Um, you, I think you put it well when you said you crowdsource it, right? Well, uh, some people don't crowdsource it. They just, you know, they get caught up in the moment and they go with their gut or something. And that's kind of what we can avoid doing by uh, investigating and researching the entire spectrum of managers in a certain strategy. And then picking best in class so that we have a lineup of world class managers that we really um, trust and and put our faith in. I would. I, I'm wondering if, and you might not know this or, or can't share, but uh, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is: is it a? Do you look for funds that have never lost investor capital, or is that it? You know. Up until this point, I've thought losing investor capital is a is a big red flag. Uh, on the other hand, I think it depends on how the management firm deals with uh, the loss of capital and how how much they communicate, and if if they've had a stellar track record since then. If there's like if that's like an awakening moment, and uh, you know, do you do you avoid those types of funds, or how do you how, how do you think you view that? 
well, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, our, our mandate usually is to preserve wealth. You know, people come to us after they have made money and the old axiom is you get rich through concentration and you stay rich through diversification. So, um, we are in the business of allocating to, um, a diverse portfolio. And, uh, I would also make the point that um, some of our clients have a very low risk tolerance. Others have a huge risk tolerance. So, you know, we've got a minority of our clients coming to us and saying, Hey, I want exposure to cryptocurrency. Um, well, if, if we have approved a hedge fund, a long short hedge fund in the crypto space, we can't guarantee they're not going to lose money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, there's a ton of volatility and, um, if the client has a desire for that exposure, certainly it's our job to make them aware that they're taking that risk. Uh, but if we feel like we have found the best manager in that strategy for them, um, we will allocate a small percentage of their capital, whatever is whatever we agree we agree is responsible, and uh, they're going to go on that roller coaster ride, and they will almost certainly lose money at some point, but then they might make it all back and then some. All right. So we we met at at the DLP Capital uh, Mastermind dinner, and I, I'd love to understand why were you there. Were you already an investor? Are you new to the fund? Are you learning about it? Um, I was there because I know a couple of folks who work at DLP and they invited me there. Um, and we are looking at DLP as a firm uh, among among many other real estate um, uh, fund managers. And I made it clear to them when they invited me. I said, "Look, I, you know, I'm I'm not allocating on my own, um, but you know, I'd welcome the opportunity to to learn more. Certainly, and they were kind enough to um, have me as a guest there. Um, but yeah, it, we're in the due diligence process there. Got it. So, so you're basically there trying to decide, like, you know, what what kind of information do you get from attending a dinner like that in your eyes? Um, a couple of things. I'm, I'm there looking to see, uh, what kind of LPs are in the room. You know, so who is the investor base for, for a fund like that? Um, also trying to understand the expertise, uh, the level of sophistication from the manager themselves, you know, the, what kind of presentation they give. And, um, I think you can also just kind of understand the way that they interact together, right? There were probably five or 10 different people from the firm there. And you get a sense of, of how they treat each other, how they treat their LPs. Um, and uh, that gives you a sense of the, the kind of partnership you can expect if you become an LP. What, what would, what is the diverse, so you said you're there to look at LPs um, and see, you know, what kind of LPs are in the room. Can you walk me through an example of like different, you know, two different sides? Sure. So what I mean by that is some funds, um, typically there's like a, a, a maturation cycle, right? So fund one, if a manager is just new to the space and they're starting out, their investors might be friends and family. And, you know, they're going out to people that they know and who trust them. Um, and they're asking them to get on board with this first fund. They don't have a track record. Uh, 
there's nothing really more to rely on than their, um, you know, do you trust this person as a person, uh, not as a fund manager, but as a person? So if they demonstrate competency in fund one and they're going to do fund two, they can take that track out to other prospective LPs. And that typically would be high net worth individuals, maybe some family offices. Um, and it's not typically until fund three, um, when they are now raising more capital, let's say 100 million or more, that uh, institutional investors like an RIA, like Simon Quick, or an endowment foundation, um, or uh, even you know pension, something like that, might come and invest in that strategy. Because by fund three, you have a sense of of whether they're you know what kind of returns can you expect? What have they demonstrated as their excellence and their expertise and and all of that? So, if you're in the room, um, you're looking to see okay, who are the family office um, executives? Who are the RIA executives? Um, you know, you can sense how institutional is this manager? Do you? I'd imagine you have a preference towards more institutional managers than not. Yes. Yes. But that's not to say that we don't like small, um, we, we don't like small funds. Right. And, and it's all relative by small. I mean, you know, hundred million to whatever, 250 million, but, um, it, it depends on the strategy, but, uh, there's a sweet spot where a manager has done a fund before and they've demonstrated competence and, you know, then you've got the ones that are so big that they've lost their their edge and they're not personal anymore. Uh, and their returns might not be quite as good as those that are younger and hungrier. <laughs> so I do think there's a sweet spot in there somewhere um, in that growth cycle where you want to invest with a manager. So given that you this is this is your career and and you have, you know, these 77 funds that are approved. Do you only invest in those funds or do you invest outside of what that you know, kind of firm, I guess, approves? It's a good question. Um, we, there's a, a sort of a, a term in our industry called wallet share. And the question is like, how much of your client's wallet share do you actually have? Right. And in some cases, you know, somebody might sell a business for 20 million and then turn to us and say, here's $20 million. This is all I have. And now you're responsible for it. Um, in other cases, they might have a net worth of $100 million and only give us 20 million of that. Right. So that's, that's okay. And, um, you know, sometimes we're not the only advisor that a client has. They might have us. And then they might have a big wirehouse bank uh, doing some other things for them, including lending them money. Um, um, but, you know, I think that, um, well, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but uh, I think a lot of our clients will do some, uh, some investing on their own um, outside of Simon Quick. They have, you know, an interest in real estate or some particular thing that they're really good at or interested in and, and Certainly, I would encourage them to keep doing that. And I'd imagine it's the same for you. Like, you know, this this firm has certain things they've they approve, but you also were investing before you were at this firm. So you 
and I imagine you've invested across all different things, not just things that are like recommended by your firm. Yes. And, you know, I think, um, some, sometimes our firm makes decisions about what managers to bring onto the platform that are based on, um, things like, okay, how broad of an appeal is this going to have in terms of our ability to, you know, use different clients' assets in this fund, right? So, um, if it's only a handful of our clients who might be interested or appropriate for a certain manager's strategy, we might not approve them. But that doesn't mean they're really good at what they're doing, right? So, um, to answer your question, yeah, there are, there are fund managers out there where I know them, I like them, I invest with them, um, even though they're not approved at Simon Quick. Right. Do you use, I want to take a step back and kind of go back to this, uh, notion around the investment thesis and, and, you know, I think jokingly earlier, I was like, okay, the boring stuff, but, but, you know, I, I think maybe five years ago uh, or 10 years ago, I, I thought that was very, very dry and boring, but I now geek out on it. Um, what are the, do you use that to craft your investment thesis or, or is it kind of like a, a sliding scale of guidelines? Like how do you use this, you know, questionnaire that kind of every financial advisor has their clients fill out and, and, and in detail kind of craft that into a strategy? Sure. Um, well, let me give you just an example and then we can expand on that if it's appropriate. But, um, every investment policy statement has asset allocation targets. So it could be the target could be 50% equities, 30% fixed income, 20% alternative investments. That's just, you know, an example. And, Within uh, around those targets, you might have ranges. So, you know, the range for equities could be 40 to 60 percent or 30 to 70 percent. And then, you know, depending on macroeconomic conditions, depending on the way the um, or geopolitical concerns or any other kind of external factors, you might decide to go underweight a certain asset class and overweight in another. Um, for example, today, Simon Quick's investment committee is recommending that we are underweight in equities, overweight in fixed income, and target weight in alternative investments. And there's a lot of nuance there, um, but that's kind of the headline. And what that allows us to do as advisor teams is look at each one of our clients' portfolios on a regular basis and um, decide where we need to rebalance, right? And we're always taking a very tax sensitive approach to this, but in order to help them navigate the winds of macroeconomics and markets, um, we, we need to be, um, paying attention to what our investment committee is recommending. Do you start with an allocation by instrument like this debt, equities, alternatives, or do you? You know, at the beginning, I mentioned this kind of thesis around, you know, focusing on cash flow first and then higher volatility uh, assets after I've reached, you know, covering my personal expenses. Is, do you always like what's the order in which the investment strategy is decided? Mm -hmm. 
we do start with asset class. So super class, right? Equities, fixed income, alternatives, and cash. Um, and those, those are, those decisions, those targets are informed by whatever the client's needs are, what their time horizon is for accomplishing their goals and so forth. Um, and then, um, you, you know, we're within those buckets, uh, we'll look at, okay, cash generation and, um, you know, growth over time. We'll look at, you know, asset location as well. Like what do you put in the client's taxable account versus their, um, IRA or, or whatever, um, you know, tax sheltered account they might have. Interesting. How do you, how like so when you say equities you mean the stock market because when i you know the other thought that comes to my mind is equities is like you can get an a, an equity based position in this alternatives uh, allocation bucket which is like investing in real estate or you know and so so when you're saying equities you it's when Pub- anyone says equities markets. it's public markets Right. Yeah. And we're not stock pickers. I think that's very hard to do, uh, to, to beat the market, so to speak, by picking individual businesses that you want to invest in. But, um, what we do is select managers who are great stock pickers and they create mutual funds that are, um, you know, the, the, the vehicle for investing in whether it's small cap domestic or large cap international or whatever, you know, value or growth or different, um, different, um, areas within the equities asset class. Um, and we try to give our clients exposure to all of it, um, within the equities class. Sometimes that's through passive vehicles. And sometimes that's through active management, whatever is the right fiduciary choice. So you've, you've talked a little bit about you're helping people, you're advising people, you know, you're, you're giving them suggestions and, and, you know, if I had a dollar for how many times I've heard um, people say like, Oh, I lost money because my financial manager recommended X or, you know, um, the initial thing that I, I come to there is, I think it depends if you have this. I'm ultimately responsible for my capital, and I'm I'm leveraging the financial advisor as a as an ad, literally as an advisor, um, and I I take their feedback and then make decisions. And then I I think when I hear this statement, uh, I think that their mindset is more, oh, I'm parking capital with them, and then they are responsible for growing it. Um, which is more which is the more appropriate lens that you think people who work with financial advisors should look through well i would hope it's the um it's the more collaborative approach you know i love it when our clients are actively involved in decision making and they they view our relationship as a partnership uh, or a collaboration um that's much more rewarding and the outcome is almost always better if you've got um, both parties uh, working together to make the right decisions. Um, certainly, sometimes we have clients who are either too busy to be involved or they just don't feel equipped to uh, make, you know, informative comments to us. Um, 
we also have clients who want to know about every decision that we're recommending, and that's okay too. Um, you know, some we we will send them our due diligence reports on a certain investment and say, you know, there's a hundred thousand dollars cash in your account, and we'd like to make this investment. What do you think? And that's okay too. Um, so. We work with the whole spectrum. I can tell you that from my perspective as an advisor, I most appreciate the clients who want to stay informed and be involved and, and have a voice. I imagine, I mean, maybe different if you have uh, clients that have more money than God um, that are, you know, won't be able to spend that in their lifetime. Uh, I imagine that kind of maybe that mindset's different, maybe it's not than, than those who are. I don't know, starting to retire and want to enjoy the finer things in life. And they, you know, just want to hand that off. Well, that's all true. And, you know, I think the the term financial advisor um, can mean a lot of different things. And I know it's outside of the scope of this podcast, but a, a lot of the conversations I have with clients aren't necessarily about investments. Um, you know, it might be more about relationships with family members. It might be more about philanthropy. It might be, um, uh, you know, about what their expectations are for their kids, right? Um, if you have a lot of money, how do you raise responsible, productive kids? Um, so, you know, we, we talk about a lot of those things too. And I think that's in, in some ways the most important advice that we can provide. Talking about advice, uh, you know, I've, we're kind of making a segmentation here between like 10 million and above, you know, the clientele that you work with and, and then the 10 million below and we're kind of painting this picture of like, you know, if you're below that threshold, you, you kind of need to go source and do a lot of these things yourself. You have to go find an estate attorney, go find a tax attorney, go, you know. Um, so for people that are in that five to 10 or, or, you know, two to 10 range and they're getting into looking at different funds and fund managers and trying to figure out who to place capital with, you know, it's not investment advice for them, particularly because they don't, you know, know their situation, but like, what are, what are some maybe tips or things that you think about that you wish people would do uh, in, in this asset demographic? Um, well, I think mostly what you're focused on with your audience uh, are alternative investments, right? Yep, correct. Uh, so um, I would view those alternative investments in two categories. Um, you've got diversifiers and you've got return generators. Um, and so when people get to the point where they're an accredited investor or a qualified purchaser in the eyes of the SEC, um, chances are they should be starting to add alternatives to their portfolio. And um, I think that they should think about those alternative investments in those two ways. Is this going to help me because it diversifies my portfolio and gives me uncorrelated, uh, you know, exposure, um, access to an asset class that is uncorrelated or perhaps inversely correlated to stocks and bonds? Or is it something that is going to potentially give me a much better return than I could find in those two asset classes that are more available to the masses, right? So um, you might want to have both or you might want to have just one or the other. I think it depends a lot on your, um, you know, where you are in life and how much more money you anticipate 
being able to earn and and add to your <laughs> net worth during your lifetime. Yeah, so let's let's maybe di- like specialize there. You know, one th- I like to talk to business owners here, Biz- businesses that you know they're growing. They they've already reached maybe five, ten, twenty million in in revenue, and and the owners have a lot of cash. You know, there's there's maybe ten or fifty k coming in a month. I was just talking with a client yesterday, and he was like, "Yeah, I, ha- I have like you know six hundred k, eight hundred k just sitting in my account, and it keeps piling up from the." From the money coming in, and like first off, great problem to have. But second off, it's like you know they're they're trying to figure out um, what to do with it. And and being a business owner myself, and knowing that I've you know built a lot of my cash flow through concentration, I've started to realize like wow, there's a lot of you know if COVID happens or if supply chain issues happen or you know like I I am very much up a river and and with nothing to show for it if I haven't diversified when. If if you're thinking about a business owner, how would you change um, or maybe add on to that statement? Um, well, it, it, I keep thinking about how this all comes back to somebody's age, right? And um, it's income, of course, but it's also how old are they and how much time do they have? How much runway do they have to continue to build wealth. And I don't think it matters so much whether you're a business owner or not. Um, One way of viewing business ownership is that you've got a concentration in private equity exposure, right? I mean, that's what that is. You own equity in a business and you have a concentration risk problem. So if you um, are thinking about investing in other alternative investments, the logical thing to do would be to find investments other than private equity. You've already got plenty of that, right? So what you need are things to complement that. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. I also I also think that you know, the thing that is most publicly available to everyone and and probably the first thing in the food chain that you can invest in is public equities and it's it's a if you've never invested in alternatives, it can be a very confusing um scary thing how 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 should you know obviously i'm maybe i'm a little biased i I probably make most of my money in alternatives uh and so you know i only have a couple hundred k in the stock market at this point and so you know how do you think about someone allocating you know from what they know um or what they think they might know that you know i'm sure you know, as you grow up, not everyone's an expert in equities. I'm not. Um, and and diversifying that into something that they also don't really know or that's new to them, like alternatives. I would actually argue that a lot of alternative investment strategies are easier to understand than public markets. I think there's so much noise in the public markets and there's so much um, leverage in the public markets sometimes that it's difficult for people to understand why numbers are going up or down, right? Right. Um, If you can really simplify a description or an explanation of what an alternative investment strategy is, I think it can make a lot of sense, right? Um, 
it's sometimes it's a tangible thing like real estate where you can see it, you can feel it. And that sometimes is easier for people to invest in um, a real asset. Or maybe it's a direct lending strategy where you say, look, you give me this capital, I'm going to take it and make investments. Um, I'm going to, you know, uh, make loans to businesses to help them operate. And then we're going to get a return off of their successful operation of that business. So it's, it can be from a conceptual level easier to understand, um, some alternative investment strategies. Problem is that it can be harder to access them. Right. And I think what you're doing, um, through your business is helping solve that problem. Um, we try to help solve that problem too. You know, 35% of our clients' assets are allocated to alternative investments. Yeah. Part of, part of what I'm realizing, you know, ha- first having worked at Techstars at a venture capital company and, and now really diving into this, uh, limited partner investing space, it, it really comes down to just access and education. Like, you know, five years ago, I didn't know where I could go find an oil and gas seal. And, and like, you can go look them up on Google, but like, how do you know which one's good? And, how do, you know, uh, and so very much just access and education. What's your take? Well, I think that's, you're right. Uh, there's a reason why they're more difficult to access. You know, I think, um, uh, because they're less regulated than the public markets. Um, you know, you have to meet a certain level of accreditation. You have to be an accredited investor or you have to be a qualified purchaser, which requires an even higher net worth. And, um, you know, they're, so they're trying to look out for people and make sure that they don't lose it all on some bad investment. Um, but at the same time, um, I think firms, some alternative investment managers are are finding ways to make it easier to invest in their strategies. For example, the advent of the evergreen fund structure, I think, is is really helpful. Um, it allows firms to bring down the minimum investment uh, commitment, you know, so instead of the old days where you might have to make a $1 million commitment to a private equity fund. And then they would go out and look for investments and call that capital gradually over three to five years as they find the right companies to invest in. Um, that can be really difficult for um, somebody who's got a couple million dollars net worth. But now, you know, there are funds out there that have an evergreen structure where you can commit $50,000 and right away they'll call all of that and it's locked up for maybe a year or two. But after that, if you need the money back, you can get it back. It's not the traditional like 10 year fund structure where you're illiquid for the duration of that time. Um, so I think that's really helpful that uh, firms are able to lower their minimums and able to uh, create an evergreen structure where there's more liquidity. There's also one kind of final point I, I think I'd like to get your take on. It says, I've been asking myself and I've been getting these questions from, from different people on my social media channels about, you know, there's different levels to this game. You know, there's, there's going to the fundrise yield street, um, you know, the, the public, you know, tech company platforms that make kind of private placements publicly available. Uh, and then there's this, 
there's a different segment of the market where you need a little bit more cash. You maybe need 50k instead of $500 uh, and or 100k. And um, and with those, you know, what's the difference between a platform like that versus going into these other ones? And and my answer, uh, as I've you know, I've kind of started to scour through Fundrise and and Yield Street, and I'm finding that I'm able to find funds with less fees or better returns. How how have you like? How do you view the landscape? And if someone's like, what's the difference between all these different platforms and private versus public? How do you look at that? Well, it's a good question. I'm not sure I have much expertise there. I think that um, you know the the that's probably much more your um, area of expertise than mine. I will say that when it comes to accessing certain um, alternative investment managers, what we're able to do that an individual can't um, would be to to negotiate down the fees and the minimums um, by aggregating our clients' capital. So if a minimum to get into a hedge fund is five million bucks, um, that's a that's a pretty big commitment, even from the most wealthy families. Um, so we can go to that manager and say, "We'll bring you twenty five million dollars as a firm, but we would like to be able to lower that minimum to one million dollars." Right. So it makes it makes that manager more accessible to more of our clients and helps get them exposure to world-class managers that they might not be able to access on their own. Totally. Yeah. I, I'm very much doing... I mean, I don't know if I'd go out of a limb and say that, but I'm doing something similarly as you where I'm aggregating capital into deals that like an example of the first, the, the DLP lending fund, right? Like you need to have 200K to invest in that fund. Uh, and we're creating a feeder fund to allow people to invest with with 50k and so that enables them to get into a higher higher product um without that much commitment but maybe without the uh the financial advice sure no i i, I think that's exactly right uh it's the you're accomplishing the same thing yeah brandon this was awesome i love this um where where can people go find you if if they want to contact you to learn more or just just have a conversation with you Sure. My email address is bfisher, that's B-F-I-S-H-E-R, at simonquickadvisors.com, advisors with an O-R-S. <laughs> awesome. I'll, I'll be sure to add all of that in the uh, in the show notes. But thank okay. you again for joining us, Brennan. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you soon. Meeting you it's again. A, soon. Yes, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Pascal.